0: We have over the past five days been reading through the Gospel of John. That word gospel that we use so freely and lightly within the church is, is a word that, while well, familiar, isn't often understood. A gospel is like a biography, but it's more than just the story of a life. It is an elevated story. It carries with it the connotations of a news that is so good that it must be told. It's a good news biography. So it may surprise you that I'm going to speak a name at the beginning of the Good Friday message that you would think would be at the heart of the story, but it's not. I'm going to say the name, and I'm going to ask you what it is that comes to mind. You ready? Ready? The name is Michelangelo. Hmm. What is it that you think of when you hear the name Michelangelo? I mean, is it not great artistry among his crowning achievements, that that glorious ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in Rome? Uh, Time and time again, we hear the name and we think of the artistry magnificent. The closer you get to it, the more beautiful it is. And yet, the interesting thing about the biography of Michelangelo is that we realize that again and again, he tired of this work. And he would flee Rome back to the safe, familiar soundings or surroundings of his home in Florence. And it was only at the coaxing of the Pope, the constant meddling and prompting, that he had to be coaxed and, and drawn back to Rome to finish that work. When we think about Michelangelo, we think about those magnificent statues like this one of David or the one of Moses. What we may not know is that Michelangelo left far more works unfinished than he ever finished. In fact, in the sacristy of an ancient church in Florence, they gathered together all of the unfinished works of Michelangelo and they counted them. And the number of unfinished works vastly exceeded those that he completed. Let me speak another name. And within the sacredness of Good Friday, ask you what it is that comes to mind Yeshua, Joshua, or as you have learned it, Jesus. We've just heard again, or seen on video, that mighty triumphant cry from Jesus, the last words that he spoke from the cross it is finished. And as you think about those words, and you think about maybe what are the greatest words ever spoken in the human languages, you might wonder, I mean, is it some great word of wisdom by a philosopher, Aristotle, Socrates? Was it spoken maybe by a poet in perfect rhyme and meter, just the right turn of phrase? Was it a statesman, a great statesman, Churchill or or Roosevelt? Or could it actually be these words? Spoken through parched lips with a raspy voice. Words that have baffled and inspired people through all the ages. Those words, it is finished. Or actually, I probably should say that word, finished. It's actually, it's a single word. It's a word of brevity and a word of power. It's a word that you use when the task is complete and it can be said decisively. There's no ambiguity, no need for lots of other words. When the task is done, it's enough just to say, finished. Indeed, the language in which the Bible was written, it's not three words, it's one word. The word is tetelaste, tetelaste. Can you say that? Tetalaste. Those of you in your home, say it with me. Tetalaste. Yeah. Uh, what I want you to, to, to savor as the words leave your mouth is just the, the emphatic power of speaking a single word, a declaration. Tetalaste. It, it makes me think about Caesar's famous three word message Veni vidi vici. Right? I came, I saw, I conquered. Same weight to this, tetelaste. And according to the Gospels, Jesus spoke these last words on the cross. And before he did that, he asked the soldiers there at the foot of the cross to moisten a towel or to moisten a sponge and hold it up to his lips so that he could again soothe those parched vocal cords in preparation for his final cry, tetalaste. It is finished. Now, maybe much to the chagrin of those of you who never particularly liked English class, I'm going to pause. I mean, strange as it is on Good Friday, I'm going to pause to look at that one word and to look at it grammatically. How many of you loved grammar? Not me. But if you look at that one word, if you look at it grammatically, if you parse it, that one word, tetelaste, third person, singular, perfect, passive, indicative. Now, isn't that exciting, right? I mean, sometimes, doesn't it, doesn't it feel like when you parse a word of Scripture, it just sort of feels like you're pulling the petals off a flower, you're robbing it of its beauty? But stay with me on this, if you would. I think there is really something important to be learned from the exact word that Jesus used here. So let's break it down. He speaks in the third person, the third person singular, which means that Jesus isn't speaking of himself. He said, it is finished. He didn't say, I am finished. He speaks in the third person now, why is that important? Because sometimes readers, especially scholars, will read this and they'll come to the bleak conclusion that this was a cry of despair, that Jesus had offered himself to his generation and he'd been rejected. He'd been turned back at every level of society, Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, Romans, even his own people, even his own disciples had turned their backs on him. And so this was despair, as if he was crying out to say, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm finished. But that's not what he said. I wasn't speaking in the first person. This is the third person. I, not I am finished, but it is finished. In a few minutes, we'll come back to what the it is but he must have had something in mind that was of great significance because he uses a particular tense. You remember tenses in grammar? We have the past tense. We have the present tense. We have the future tense. Well, there's a tense that is actually not often used, that is reserved for for special occasions. It's the perfect tense. The perfect tense speaks about something important that has been completed. It's done and having been done, it cannot be altered. That's why it's called perfect, right? It can't be taken back. He uses the perfect tense. To speak about something that will stand the test of time. It's, it's kind of like somebody had placed their foot in wet cement and then it had hardened and it had left a footprint there and, and it had been chiseled, like it, it, chiseled for all time into the marble or granite that time itself wouldn't erode. It is finished. Perfect tense. Just pull another pedal off if you'd like. He speaks with the indicative which means certainty. The opposite of the indicative is the subjunctive. You don't care. You don't need to remember that. But he could have said in the subjunctive, it may be finished. It's possible that it's done, but he doesn't. This shout of triumph has certainty to it. He says, it is finished. No question. Not only that, he uses the passive Voice. If you were to say it in the active voice, what you would say is, I've finished it. But it's the passive voice, as if saying that, that what's happening there is empowered by some great design, some great force. He didn't just say, I finished it. Instead, he puts that mighty deed out there in the hands of something even bigger and says, It is finished. The life of Jesus from first breath to final breath on the cross was caught up in the great purposes of God. It was the culmination of of centuries of promises and prophecies. And all of that, all of that gets gathered together in that final word. It is finished. Teteleste. This word third-person, singular, perfect, passive, indicative, as if to say in one word, the mighty sweep of all God's history is captured and culminated here. One other little point of grammar, and then thankfully we'll just leave all that behind. But, you know, if you, if you redu- reduce a verb to its essence, to what's called its substantive form to a noun, you can learn a lot about what's underneath it. So if you were to reduce the word "tetaleste" to its substantive form, it gives the noun teles. Now, why is that important? Well, boy, this past year, it's been vitally important. Teles is the word that gives us telephone, television, telegraph. It has this sense of something that has Reach its goal. It's something that has come to completion. If you're speaking about fruit, it's fruit that has ripened to maturity. But think about what a telephone does. A telephone delivers a message in sound to its desired destination. The message is received, it is completed. A television delivers a message in picture to its audience. And many of you are joining because that's the way it works. When Jesus says, Tetelestai, What he's saying is that the righteous purposes of God have now been completed. They have been delivered to their intended recipients according to God's will and plan. It is finished. Let's shift gears a little bit from the grammar classroom to the history room, if you'd like. And I want to take you to 19th century Egypt, in Egypt and in, in that place in the world where the sand is always dry. And in 19th century Egypt, in an excavation discovered by a man named Adolf Dishman, they found a series of ancient papyruses that dated from the days of the New Testament. There's was a set of business papers, correspondences, kind of real estate transactions, the marketplace stuff. Of life. And that papyrus, preserved perfectly in the dry sands of Egypt, never turned brittle. The writing had never faded, and it was like a treasure trove for all kinds of reasons. As they began to sift through these papyri, papyrus, as you know, is plants, they're reeds that are woven together to form a surface upon which you can write. As they sifted through the papyrus, they, they, they found a language that was remarkably similar to the language of the New Testament. You see, up until that moment in the 19th century, we didn't have any record of the language of the New Testament. Uh, people thought maybe it's just some sort of sacred language, the likes of which had not been known by any other human being or spoken by any other human tongue. What they found... Was that this was the language of the marketplace? That the story of Jesus was being spoken, was being delivered, us, in the language of common people. And the other thing remarkable they found sifting through all of those papyri was the word Tetelestai. Where did they find it? They found it on deeds. Transactions, real estate transactions, marketplace transactions. When the transaction had been completed, they wrote the word tetelastai. There's this sense, you know, in which the whole Old Testament, everything that had come before Jesus is like a deed waiting to be signed. I mean, from those earliest moments outside the gates of Eden as as sin and failure and guilt cast a dark shadow across the human race, all the promises of God, all the hopes of human beings, they get delivered to the cross as if one massive deed requiring a signature. And when Jesus says it is finished, it's like he took all 39 books of the old covenant and wrote across them the name Messiah. Or if you like, in Greek, Christ. It is finished. Not only that, as they dug around in the sands of the desert in the middle of the 19th century, they found that that word tetelestai functioned kind of like one of those inked stamps that you place on a contract when it has been paid. You've seen those, you've done that. The transaction is completed. They stamp in bright red ink, paid, tetelastai. That, that kind of shocked scholars. It stunned the grammarians. There in the marketplace, this word, unknown, uh, misunderstood, used to mark a completed transaction. So let's go from, from the grammarians' classroom from the historian's classroom into the classroom of the accountant. And let's ask the question, what transaction was completed? Exactly what is the it that was finished? What is it that Jesus said in the midst of his ministry? He said that the Son of Man has come to give his life as a ransom for many. If that's the case, then what is the ransom payment for? What is the transaction about? The story of Jesus in the earliest of its moments includes this remarkable, somewhat chilling account of Mary holding her infant son Jesus in her arms Visiting the temple in Jerusalem, handing her son into the hands of an old man, Simeon, who prayed over him and prayed God's blessing and thanked God for the privilege of seeing and holding the Messiah. But then turned to Mary. And you remember what Simeon said to Mary? He said that her heart would be pierced by what would happen to the baby she was holding in her arms. And that wasn't just something Mary knew, it was something that Jesus knew. Jesus spoke of this hour as if he saw it, kind of like some invisible hourglass that was hanging there over his head. He said it very early in ministry, the wedding feast at Cana in John 7, he says, my hour has not yet come. Kind of like the striking of a clock, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. come. He lived as a man who knew that there was hanging over his head some awesome hour that he would face. And even early in his ministries, he he spoke to his disciples about the time when the bridegroom would be taken away. And it would be a time for grieving. And as the time approached, about six months Before the cross, he began to prepare them in all of those passion sayings that we've been reading in the Gospels, particularly in the Gospel of John. That the Son of Man must go up to Jerusalem, that he'll be arrested, that he will die. But then he'll be raised. (laughs) Some of us cringe even if we look at our calendar and we know we have a dentist appointment next week. You know, or we've we've got a doctor's appointment or a procedure coming up. Here was the Son of Man, the Son of God, who lived his whole life, his whole ministry, knowing that this moment would come, and yet somehow his life and his ministry was all bound up in the awareness that that's why he had come, and all of that reaches its exclamation point in that final word, tetelaste, it is finished. Jesus was careful to make it clear that, that when that moment came, that it wasn't just him, that that everything that had gone before, all of the symbols, all of the emblems, all of the institutions, everything that they knew, the, the priesthood, the temple, the altar, the sacrifices, all of it, all of it was going to be bound up in his life, and now in this moment, and all of it gets completed in that cry, it is finished. Some of you remember as we spent the better part of a year making our way through the Sermon on the Mount, those words very early in the teaching ministry of Jesus Matthew 5, verse 17, kind of Jesus' great kingdom manifesto, the Sermon on the Mount. He defines his relationship to God and everything that had come before him saying this. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, all this stuff that came before me. I've not come to abolish them. I've come to what? To fulfill them. In other words, every symbol. Every institution, every ordinance, everything in the Old Testament would find its substance in him. Every promise that predicted his coming would find its fulfillment. Every priest who stepped in front of an altar would find their fulfillment in Jesus who would be called the great high priest. Some of you, a few I know have have visited Jerusalem, and maybe you've been inside the Church of the Holy Sepulchre that that marks the moments that we celebrate today. In the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, there's a painting that hangs high on the wall with an inscription that reads, Hamegalos Archaeoreos, the Great High Priest. That That whole bloody trail of sacrificial victims, every lamb, every goat, every bull, everything that had been delivered to the altar in a river of blood flowing from the temple, flowed right up to the cross where Jesus cries out and says, it is finished. It's almost as if all of it. Comes together. All those promises are like one compressed spring or one stretched elastic band. And as humanity watches, eager with expectation for the day that it would be let loose, let free, it's let free with that one shout, It is finished. What is finished? The ransom. The atonement, the, the covering, everything that had been anticipated in all the days leading to the cross. Quite simply, dying to the death of death, never to die again. It is finished. Looking at the cross, though, I wonder if there, there might not also be some word, and, and I hope it's an encouraging word, about death to sin and about death to the works of of God's great adversary in the world you know from that first moment that that temptation entered the lives of that first pair right up until this very day i mean we've all known haven't we the sting of defeat we know the alluring temptation of sin we we know the weakness the The vacillating of our own will. We look back and carrying behind us is all the guilt of the past. And we can sense sometimes in the present our powerlessness, our inability to deal with the circumstances of life apart from the mighty power of God. When you look around and you, you see it, look at our city. You see the works of the adversary there up and down every street corner, every boulevard, in the neighborhood, in your home. You see the shadow of the accuser, the slanderer, the enemy of our souls. So it's little wonder that the Bible says, 1 John 3, 8, that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. I think what was meant by that is that, that on the cross, underneath the pierced feet of Jesus, he was crushing the head of the serpent. Now, I know, somebody said years ago, if he's dead, it sure still looks like he's alive. But, but here's the point. From that moment on, Jesus struck the blow that ultimately will render powerless the great enemy of our souls. And maybe in this age we still see it on display—the power of darkness. But, but when He comes again, in that final cry of victory, the enemy will be chained, and we will hear the truth of that word: "Tetelestai." It is finished. from the classroom of the grammarian to the classroom of the historian to the realm of the accountant, to you. Or if you'd like, to the theater, where the question is always asked, who is the audience? Who's listening? Think with me for just a minute or two about who it is that heard Jesus' final word. The word was spoken, but who was it spoken for? To whom did Jesus cry out? Was he crying out to God himself? I mean, who could imagine that hour? That hour in sacred history, unknown years before, when, when the eternal word of God, you know, it's the description given of Jesus, in the beginning was the word. The eternal word of God steps aside from his seat and as and a glad volunteer says, I will go. I, I will lay down my life, as it says in John 10. I lay it down on my own accord. No one takes it from me. And then as he sets foot in human history, the word from the Father come down to him in the middle of the Jordan. You are my son whom I love with whom I am well pleased. When was it those words were spoken? wasn't when Jesus had already laid aside all the splendor of the eternal word of God. He'd come to the cradle of Bethlehem to be born and now he was walking among us. God, what are you doing here on earth? At the transfiguration, a voice thunders again from heaven to earth. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. now at last, at the end of his long journey, a voice echoes back from earth to heaven. It's a word of affirmation, this time from the Son to the Father. It is finished. And surely God was listening. I wonder if there wasn't also another group who were listening in that moment. Maybe if... If we could peel back the veil, we would have seen that, that audience, that unseen group, the angelic host gathered around the cross. The Bible says that Jesus, he could have called 10,000 angels, a whole legion to deliver him. Who can even begin to imagine it? Seraphim and cherubim, burning spirits, divine agents. The Bible seems to suggest that they almost had to be restrained from intervening as the Son of God bled to death on the cross. Wasn't it also for them, those restrained celestial creatures that he cries out, it is finished? Well, the veil is peeled back, Weren't there also those many people, maybe more interested than anyone else? All of those Old Testament believers, those who had come before, who one by one had been gathered into the bosom of Abraham, to use that great expression. When the blood of Jesus began to fall on Golgotha and And left it stain in the earth. And and ran from the earth to the grass. And from the grass to the trees. And as the trees elevated themselves towards the heavens. And the birds began to sing their song. To heaven above it is finished. I, I wonder. I wonder if we couldn't have heard. Eavesdropping on the conversation between father Abraham. As he whispered to his son. My son that That thing for which I took you to Mount Moriah symbolically, it's now finished. And as Isaac said to Jacob, you know how we were told it was finished? And as Jacob says to Joseph, it is finished. And as Joseph says to all those who came after him, Tetelestai, it is finished. And all heaven rings out with that affirmation, it is finished. And they fall down at the throne and they say, worthy is the lamb that was slain. What a resounding sound must have gone through the rank and file of all of those Old Testament believers who were there as witnesses. And I wonder if If that final cry wasn't actually heard also in hell itself. Or the adversary had to cover his ears. I mean, that, that one who from the very gates of Eden had let loose the hounds of hell to stop the purposes of God. The one who had animated Herod the Great to butcher the infants of Bethlehem. The one who had tried to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. The one who right up until those final moments in the Garden of Gethsemane had tried to stop him before his blood began to flow on the cross. I wonder if he didn't hear the shout of triumph. It is finished. And offer his own cry of despair in response. And I wonder about you. I wonder if he wasn't crying out for you. I know he was for me. How do we know that it is finished? We could have said it, but but we know it. And that's something deeper, isn't it? The moment after he cried out the veil, the veil that that covered the most sacred place in world, the most sacred spot in history, was torn from top to bottom. It is finished. Matthew, the, the Jewish gospel writer, wrote in his gospel that that veil, 60 feet long, heavy with embroidery, hung on acacia wood, covered with gold, was torn right from the top to the bottom. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that that sleepy-eyed priest who walked into the temple that day to go through his mandatory rituals and suddenly turned to see that veil ripped from top to bottom and is gazing at the one place in the world they were never allowed to look, right at the symbolic manifestation of the very presence of God. He must have run from that place with holy terror, said that church was never supposed to be like this. What had been walled off from the world was now set free. Humanity could come to God. The veil was no longer a barrier. We know it's finished because of the vindicating resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's the reason we don't just gather today. We, we gather on Easter morning. If the body of Jesus had turned to dust in some unmarked Palestinian grave, there would be no assurance. But the book of Romans opens with the triumphant words that Jesus was proved to be the Son of God. He was vindicated by the power of the resurrection. He was exalted to the right hand of God the Father. It is finished. And a final affirmation comes In the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church of the living God, before Jesus left, he said to wait for that which was promised by the Father. So what if those 120 people who were gathered together in that upper room, praying together, oh God, send your spirit, had been met with nothing but silence, nothing had come. It all would have been finished. Just another dead Hebrew rabbi. Just another wasted martyr. Nothing would have happened. But on that day, exactly 50 days after the resurrection, there came the sound, the echo of a mighty rushing wind and and cloven tongues of fire and the Spirit of God poured out on his people. The crowning affirmation of the truth of his victory cry, it is finished.